Welcome to the Space Cave, a big warg to all of you. My name is David Huntsberger. I have a website, davidhuntsberger.com. This podcast has a site, thespacecave.com. You can email it at pings at thespacecave.com. If you have suggestions for guests or beer or subjects or anything else, that's the place to do it. There's also uh, social media pages as well, links to that at the website. And if you're not a Patreon subscriber... You can listen to this entire chat early and in full by becoming one, and it continues to allow this show to exist ad-free, and it's made possible by contributions from listeners just like you. So thank you for that. Let's get to part two with the the brilliant Sharus Shaket. Back with Sharus Shaket. Cool name. Didn't, I, I mean, Shawcat is a cool name too. Shock it. Like, <laughs> I mean, if you could be so many different people, popped collar, sunglasses up, <laughs> offering a fist bump, shock it, baby. And then they, they go, oh, man, that Sharus guy is detestable, but he's so good at computer science. <laughs> <laughs> and we were talking a little bit about, oh, we left off at this scintillating uh, tease about the representation you see. Or the rules. And I think that ties into things that, oh, you need to see this done. You need to see this thing done and that's how – but I, I always kind of push against that a little bit that like I don't know that we always need representation to do everything. Sometimes you need the opposite. You need to be told this can't be done right. and then you do it. Or you need something that is – you have no idea what it looks like. Anyone's ever – someone was the first to climb up a mountain. And then everyone after that is like, well, I had representation. I had, you know, I could see myself doing that. Like, in a weird way, then you're kind of a copycat. To be a true innovator, you either need something unknown, unseen, or something told to you can't be done or seen. And you're like, let me let me check first. Right. And I love that. I like. I think there's a necessity. It's like ants that just you ever just watch one ant. You're like, where are you going? Everyone <laughs> else is over there. I get that you're kind of the scout, but you're way off base. But maybe they find something. Right. And people are, there's nothing over there. We already checked. But that ant's like, I just, I got to see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so That ant is me sometimes. <laughs> I, it just feels like you have that in you where like lining up with things like podcasting or find things that are a little different. Or when this, this show is broadcasting from this place, I think to a broader group, they'd say, oh, these hipsters, they like coffee this way. They, oh, I only listen to music if it's made in this and recorded in a four track. And like, I don't think that's really where it comes from. I think it's more like just your natural genetics, whatever it is, your predisposition to like, just kind of like finding the thing that isn't where all the ants are. Right. So for whatever that is, it yeah. seems like you <laughs> had that with software and, and writing code and, and kind of. I never, I never do that. I think of code as just being like this, you know, like collection of stuff that makes all the things. I don't, I almost never think of it from the other side of like most developers and software engineers 
or visualizing it much more first and then writing to that. Yeah. And I kind of always think of them as just like writing and writing and writing and then like, what'd that turn out? And that makes no sense. I don't know why I think of it that way, but it's, you're seeing it on a screen. Maybe, do you ever mock it up in Photoshop? I'm like, okay, that's what I want to make. Sometimes. I think for, I've, I've worked on so many different like categories of projects at this point that like everyone has a, a different process. And there's also times where I am just sort of like, you know, stream of consciousness, writing code and like figuring out. Really? afterwards and reviewing like all right this didn't work this worked this you know that kind of thing um yeah i, I think like uh i mean i'm curious how if if like your approach to like writing is is maybe similar where sometimes you have a lot of stuff that you can just you sort of write quickly and then go back and edit versus you know breaking out a story or breaking out like a joke or something first and then filling it in after like with stand-up i always wrote longhand in a like a legal pad and i and i liked even within that you're so far behind your thoughts that you you go through a natural editing process in just for the sake of your hand. Right. Like, uh, I'm just going to kind of you're trying you're struggling to keep up, but kind of minimalizing what you're putting out. So I never thought of myself as a writer doing that, even though I was very particular. Like every thing has you know might say it slightly differently or choose a which instead of a with or you know whatever the word choice sure. you can swap out. But over, overwhelmingly, the premise was very scripted. But I never thought of it as writing but then like doing actual scripts right have people come over and record a voice and say and be able to say like no no, no that it's got to be this this is the intention behind it or that i much more felt like writing and i could i can i think answer that from that point of view which is i think about it a lot in my head beforehand which i'm guessing you do and then you sit down and like think you know where it's going Right. And I have a pretty good idea of maybe sometimes the first couple of lines or I know a line I want to get to and I start working toward it. And then sometimes it'll just take these bizarre turns or it'll reveal something totally unique that I'm like, that's such a good ending. Or that's for whatever it does in my little dopamine brain to be like, that's what I like. I would guess code is the same. Other people might come in and be like, I don't like that. Why is that typeface that way? Why is it spaced this way? But you'd be like, Watch what it does. It doesn't matter. All that other stuff's just like dressing, but like what it does. I dreamed it up. I wrote it. Is that sound yeah. relatable? Yeah, and and there's definitely different. Like even beyond like the 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 way you might format your text editor. Like there's different ways of structuring code and all these different schools of thought as to like the best way of organizing complex systems of code. Um, and like this is like something that everybody deals with every day. Like especially with. Um, like so much of the stuff that the average developer works on today in any scenario is, you know, uh, taking advantage of a lot of open source code and a lot of open source libraries where there's these big chunks of, you know, functionality that's already been written and, and vetted and it's secure and like it it's functional. And so you can just take that and put it into your own code and integrate it so that you don't have to rewrite all that stuff from scratch. Um, and, like, those kinds of conversations, even for open source, like, still come up all the time. Uh, and so it's it's a thing that every every developer has to constantly deal with is, like, how do we make all these different systems that are so influenced by personal taste and personal preference work together so that the the biggest possible group of people can actually use these things and still have them be compatible? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, when uh, I was asking you, I keep forgetting the name... They're not units. I keep, you know, when you're writing XML and you just have whatever's inside the bracket and you have each. Um, like a tag? Yeah. I think of them as tag. I think there's a different name they use for like enclosures, one of them, you know, like. An element? Uh, yeah, yeah. Different elements. Yeah. And even that doesn't seem like 
perfectly right for the word I'm looking for, but that probably is the thing. But it, so you have these elements and the way you structure them or line them up, some people end in, in or some people skip a space. I like it clean. So there's a little space in between. Now you got to bunch it all up there and you got to, or you can do little drop down arrows to hide some of right. it and all of that stuff. I, I get that just preference. However, like when you take the XML, which is to me very simple code because it doesn't involve a lot of if thans. There's no uh, question marks and right. <laughs> all the all the stuff you start to think of when you think of code of like, um, what am I thinking of? I think of my SQL databases working with PHP. Oh, PHP. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, PHP code to me just is so foreign. Where I'm like, eh. That might as well be like Arabic or something. I can't. I just can't get my head around it, but it looks cool. I'm like, God, if I could just read that, <laughs> I w- I would feel so smart. I'd feel. And every now and again, I can know enough to select and copy and paste that chunk and put right. it in. A, okay, now it's doing what I want. But overwhelmingly, like XML is just not that it's embarrassingly simple, but it's pretty like what you see is very readable and understandable. Yeah. And yet you go to any of the validators mm-hmm. and you enter your XML or your RSS feed and they run like these little pinwheels and that looks good. That looks good. The image is showing up. That looks good. And then they'll be like, but, and they'll say, is it an RSS feed? Yes. And then they'll say something like, is it aesthetically pleasing? Or they, <laughs> there's like another element where like even just this software, this AI can read it and be like, that's yeah. not good. That is not <laughs> how you need to structure that. But I feel like well, it's sourcing all the elements. It's getting all the stuff. It's That's code. Yeah. So if you just looked at like a workshop where like sawdust everywhere and cords and papers, but a very beautiful cabinet, you'd say, who cares? The cabinet's great. But I feel like, no, no, no. You want to walk in and know where all the tools are right. and you want the floor clean. It seems like you're more that way as well. I think so. And that, that's definitely been something that uh, I've grown into over time. I was way more reckless like, earlier <laughs> on and just like, if it works, it works. Um but yeah, I mean, I, I think going also from like at Earwolf, uh, I was the only engineer for a little bit. And then we brought on like a couple others that were also part time. Uh, but going from like working mostly solo, even like before Earwolf, uh, into more and more like team based environments, like definitely there's a shift in mindset about like, well, I can't just write the code that that is going to run. I have to write code that also makes sense to other people so they can jump in and fix it or maintain it or extend it mm-hmm. later on or you know, I'm writing this code for this feature now, knowing that we're going to have this other feature that we want to ship later in the year. And I have to set up that code so that, you know, it, it ties into that new feature and can migrate cleanly to that new feature. So we're not having to come back and rewrite everything. Like there's all sorts of different things that you learn over time, like coding and like working in different contexts that definitely, I think, get you to start thinking a little bit more about systems that you prefer that work well with, with other developers and yeah. Man, I'm thinking this is probably going to be too long-winded, but I'm just thinking of the evolution of humanity and the early stages of roads. I think it was like the horse and buggy, the wheel width ended up being very similar to like train yeah. tracks and and then say you have a train, so you you know like well, we're going to go to that, but there's talk of a, a a boomtown setting up here, so why don't we put a junction here just to be safe? It's the exact same thing. Like we're laying the tracks, we're going to put just the start of it here and then we'll just put like kind of some wood up. And then later when, you know, in the old West movie, when they're flying down this rail on an ore cart and they throw this switch, they slam into this empty bit of wood for something like, why is that wood there? It was just in case that boomtown ever showed up, that new bit of code. And then we do that for current grids and structures where streets just kind of end and 
the main line for the sewer or the water pipe, what it just ends there. But, and I've oddly here in LA, I talk, they have this thing that just drills into the pipe. So they don't have a cap on it. If they're going to leave it open for a house to be built there and they want to tap into the grid, mm-hmm. they just drill into it and kind of thread into the pipe as they're going, which is pretty fascinating to me that That's this cool. whole city is built on that. We're like, you would think the pressure involved would just whatever machine they have, blow it back out into the street, okay. but it doesn't. It like, they just drill right into the pipe. Anyway, I think beyond that, then getting into things like electricity and circuits and understanding, well, we have to have this tied off here with just some wire nuts, but if someone were to undo these wire nuts, they could tap into this circuit and go forward and I assume they're going to understand the way these nuts are threaded on there. Even if they switch them around, they probably still work. And just cars that are becoming more electric and batteries and understanding the just the simple chemistry involved in that where I think most we don't. Like everyone's just kind of like, I don't know. I used to just go and put like – I pump some fuel into my car and then that would make this engine somehow combust and it would drive <laughs> me down the street. And now like you're telling me I have to understand – what anions and cations <laughs> i don't know what technology is going on in there but to understand all that and how it ties together it didn't it seems strange that code would have that same thing like there is a language is it universal like could you ship it off to someone in say china and be like here you go uh i mean there's different languages um so with each language there's various different like standards that that change every few years or so about like what the, your like so-called developer environment should look like so i like a lot of what i write is uh these days is javascript and a variant of it called typescript which okay. is just, like a little bit more secure uh in the sense that you're less prone to make mistakes and you know uh, you can ship more bug-free code and solidity which is uh the uh code that's used on ethereum which is like a, a crypto yeah. network um, so I, I tend to write mostly in those two and they're pretty popular and they have very stable environments. So if I were to, you know, ship some of my code elsewhere, I, I imagine they'd have no problem understanding it and, and, you know, taking it from there. Uh, there's also definitely way more, uh, like, uh, unique and like not very common, uh, languages as well. And languages that used to be popular, but are not so much today, like PHP, 10 years ago, I think the average developer would have been relatively comfortable with, or average web developer would have been comfortable with. Today, I think that's less the case because people have shifted over to JavaScript just because that ecosystem has matured a lot over the past 10 years. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it changes, but also, like, if you're working on, you know, in the popular language of the day, uh, you'll have no problem finding other people that are totally comfortable with it. I love that language. That ecosystem has matured. <laughs> <laughs> Because PHP, I think, was around the same time. I want to say ASP was kind of a, a rival. Sure. Yeah. It seems like maybe that has filtered out. And then I've lost track. I, there was a period where I felt like you're making decisions on, okay, if I'm going to, you know, tr- I was leery of drag and drop stuff. And then at a point just was like, all right, I'm sick of trying to keep up with the ecosystem. I'm just going to use drag and drop and just chips fall where they may. If I update my website and it just goes, nothing works now. I'm like, yeah, hmm. I had a good run. I, I don't, I can't get in there. And I, and just into, or like fundamentally how a team of developers would sit down and go, you know what they need on WordPress? They need a plugin that allows you to blah, blah, blah. And then they, multiple people spend either for fun or after work hours, just writing up a bunch of PHP. I think that's typically what WordPress, yeah. WordPress operates off of. And then just uploading it for free. Like, here you go. Yep. This is open source. You can use it. You can give us a rating if you like. Maybe there's a donate button. 
that goes against the sustainability thing we were talking about with podcasts because there's a lot of work that goes into making a podcast as well. And most people do just put it up. There you go. It's free. But you're hoping to get some ads or, you know, where are these sustainability things? Because when you think of a podcast and you're like, you got to pay your bills. Like, what are you doing? You can't just put it out there for free. There's another party that thinks, yeah, but these developers, they like it. It's like it's a calling card or they can tell their friends or put it on a resume. Is that the reason to do it or is it just love of the game? For for shipping open source code specifically? Yeah, just yeah. spending hours and hours of time to make something that you in no way intend to like monetize later. I think it's a mix of things. Um, definitely, I think for most people, it starts off with either just you know enjoying making that stuff and shipping it to people that might find it useful a lot of times it's also just like you got to scratch your own itch and like there's maybe some problem that you need to solve for something else that you're working on. But you know that this specific thing you can kind of like isolate and have it be useful for others as well. So it's just like a free byproduct that you can ship and share with other people. And there's also a little bit of benefit there where if you make it open source and other people find use in it, they might contribute to it. They might help you maintain it. So that burden also may shift away from you if that's not what you want to be focused on. Um Longer term, though, and like I, I've talked to a lot of people who have shipped like really influential, like essential open source code that like every major company uses nowadays. Uh, but it's such like a thankless job because they're doing like the lowest level work, meaning like everybody else's work is building on top of it in some way. And they're not recognizing that. All right. What what makes this possible is the fact that somebody built like the foundation for for all this stuff. Um yeah, I, I think like a lot of people after spending years in open source, you know, the, uh, there's a mix of regret. There's a mix of like, well, we should we deserve to get paid more. We deserve to have, you know, major companies that use our stuff come and uh, sponsor our, our ongoing development of this so that we can actually like, you know, keep working on this sustainably for this thing that, that is absolutely essential to their business. Yeah. Um, that kind of thing. And yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't think I've met somebody... I'm sure they're out there, but I don't think I've met somebody who has worked on open source for a very long period of time and uh, enjoys doing it for free after <laughs> like many years of it. Yeah, I just always had thought of it as I'm just kind of showing off. I built this thing. I sold it to Google. I'm good. I just still like code. I wrote this, have it. I always think it, it you know, for a company to be doing it or offering it or you're just asking someone to be doing it on a low end, that seems like sweatshoppy that seems rough yeah i mean it's definitely taking advantage of the fact that people wanted to do this at some point for free and they put it out for free and now you can do whatever you want with it yeah uh which can be exploitative uh especially if it demands more work from the original creator who's not going to see any benefits from it um i think like there's also a lot of interesting discussions happening there and uh, interesting thoughts around licensing because with every open source project, you are expected to ship some kind of license where you specify what other people are allowed to do with it or not. Like it is possible to ship open source code that people are not allowed to use, right? Like it's just there for educational purposes. You can read it, you can learn from it, but you're not meant to use it. Like that's one of the more restrictive licenses. Hmm. So it's possible to like set yourself up a little bit uh, against exploitation in that way if that's what you're, you know concerned about as as an open source contributor um but that's also hard to enforce especially if it's if you're going up after some gigantic company with a lot of resources and you're just solo yeah um yeah i think it i mean it, it depends on the person and what they're doing it for um yeah it's it's different for everybody it, there were some tie-ins to 
not really knowing what they had done or having things on the back end later on where like when you're talking about designing all these things or thinking things up and how fun it was at Earwolf. And then after the fact, like, wait a second, now everyone does that. That was kind of the open source experience. Like, but you maybe didn't mean to have it be open source. It just, should you have encrypted stuff? Should you have hmm. protected it? Should you have put your name on it? And like anytime anyone utilizes this feature on a podcast network website, got to come back to me because I invented that. Is there that feeling of like... No, because I, I think like the fact that podcasts existed as a found and, and all the tech that's required to make podcasts a thing existed as a foundation for me to like build a couple of, of ideas that I thought were really fun on top of. Uh, I didn't feel like I was owed anything because I was I was just like, you know, putting a couple tiny Lego pieces on like this very intricate structure that had already been built up. Yeah. Uh, I didn't feel like I deserved to have like some huge chunk of the whole thing or deserve to get credit when like the work that I'm doing is so dependent on everybody else's stuff. I also think there's like a difference between ideas, which I think are uh, more difficult to protect, certainly, but also like less essential to protect, in my opinion. Like, I think if there's a cool idea that's useful to other people, like the idea of like uh, profile pages for for your your podcast network's guests, I don't think anybody should feel ownership over that. That feels more like a discovery of like something that's useful to people that should now just be public domain and anybody can implement that if they choose versus like if I wrote the code for that that made it easy, that we didn't actually open source because Earwolf wasn't like an open source kind of company. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't know. How, like I never, I never th- feel like all the innovations that we did at Earwolf, like I wish that credit came back to me. Like I've never felt that way really. Yeah. I wonder when that period sort of stopped because when it was more physical, I mean, obviously patent pending on things or the patent number on things. And then, Hey, well, hang on. You reverse engineered it. Or the people would spend years in court saying this was patented. You knowingly stole, you, you took this, uh, there've been a number of those, you know, like, China is still doing that, but that the U.S. did that in the beginning. I mean, we right. reverse engineered or stole things, or so maybe people just gave up. Like, ugh, you know, everyone that comes out with a hit song, someone is going to attach themselves and say, "I did that song first right. and try to prove it." And if they can just get a settlement, just to get out of your hair, people do that all the time. I was just listening to a podcast where a songwriter was talking about that. Like, it's just kind of never ending. So, right. wouldn't it be easier to just give it away? But if you're just only making music and giving it away constantly, that is definitely not sustainable. Right. Especially when the other end of that can be, uh, it took a bit, but I got the publishing rights. I have a copyright on it. It is mine. And therefore, every time it plays, I get X amount of that revenue from wherever it's being played. And yet within the tech world, it's probably just so hard to stamp or something because anytime someone opens that code and copies and pastes, they can just, if you had it stamped in there, written by Sharus, they're like, delete, 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 delete. Yeah. Yeah. Um, again, I, I think like I'm also not super subject to a lot of the the more negative stories around around the space because I'm just not contributing anything particularly advanced. Like <laughs> I, I think I'm using it in my in my my career. Like I've, I'm using very simple techniques to do things that are novel because they're just reaching audiences that aren't used to having somebody technical like build stuff specifically for them. Like uh, like thinking back to Earwolf, like podcast listeners, they're experience was having you know apple podcasts or it might have even been in itunes at that point um you know just having a handful of these different services that are coming from these or different podcast listing apps that are coming from these relatively big companies that move very very slowly and so 
that audience just wasn't used to having like, oh, well, here's like a very specific thing because we know that you like comedy. So here's tour dates. You know? <laughs> yeah. uh, Apple wasn't building that in. So, yeah, I, I think I've I've avoided being precious with my own work because I know that it's just there for like a specific audience generally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but maybe there's someone, you know, because Apple now is getting into the subscription side of things. Right. And the last time we talked, I think a lot of the stuff we did discuss has started to move into coming to fruition, one of which was Patreon being uh, like VC backed. Mm-hmm. Is at some point going to have to show those investors like, so that means the prices go up, the percentages right. they take from the people that utilize their platform. And then we were also considering the idea like, why does Apple have their only competition just piggybacking and using their service for free. They just give you an RSS feed that you put into Apple Podcasts and use it. They could easily cut that off. And so then I see like a week or two ago, Patreon has developed an app. And so I know at some point like Stitcher collapsed. And so right as you're leaving Earwolf, Stitcher is kind of taking off or maybe within a a couple of years, you know, went through scripts and I went through, I was getting all these you know, notices or tax things or whatever from all these different companies. Like, who owns this now? <laughs> and that happened with some stand-up stuff, too, where I had to, like, track it down and get in touch with someone. Like, I think you have a thing of mine that you don't own anymore. Hmm. And he was very open and honest. Like, you're right. I don't. I just – no one came to check. Oh, so wow. then he gave me back all the rights to this full album and everything. And nice. I think with podcasting, it's a little harder. And maybe Stitcher didn't want to go through that. So they just sent an email blast. Hey, you can have your stuff back. We're we're kind of folding up our tents with our. I thought that was really nice. I just expected like, how many bands do you know of where their record label collapsed and then they never made another album right. because like they technically own the rights to that not only catalog but maybe the name of that future entity or whatever. And so, thinking of like what we were talking about though with the future and and Patreon designing their own app and and then you know, Stitcher getting out of it, that's just speculation, I suppose. But is it? If tech is so easy, then having an app shouldn't be that hard. Right. And yet to maintain it and keep it up to speed, it takes quite a bit. And I think, yeah, that that's part of it is the maintenance. Like it's very easy to get a version one out of something, but you're going to naturally discover bugs over time that are very specific to people's use cases that you're not necessarily thinking ahead about. And then every year there's new hardware that's out and there's operating system upgrades. So like there's a natural sort of like need for maintaining all these things. Uh, the other thing, which I think is like the bigger problem for, uh, tech startups these days is like, it's not just about building the app. It's about getting distribution, which means like, how do you market, uh, you know, the product to people? How do you get it actually used by people? Um, which like is really hard because every, it's so noisy out there. Like everybody's (laughs) advertising all sorts of things all the time. And so for something new to come out, uh, it's just really, really hard, especially for it to get to the the kind of scale that's needed to be, you know, sustainable. Um, yeah, it can be really, really challenging. Yeah. I, and I, so to see Patreon doing it, they're taking a gamble. They're taking a risk thing. And it seems that they would maybe be assuming the free ride has ended and Apple is going to take over the subscription space hmm. and kind of boot them off. And they'll send out another blast. Tell all your people, look, we have our own app. We can compete with Apple but when you think of that user base and then you think of like, well, maybe the people that we talked about, like you finding, ah, they do it in this little dingy garage and it's on this radio station. I like that. And then maybe that's what the Patreon app feels like. Oh, everyone's on Apple Podcasts. Maybe they go over to it. But if they don't, that's a lot. There's just a lot of people left in limbo there. Yeah. And because it's digital and because it's tech, it goes up in smoke pretty quickly right. in a way where people are like, wait, 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 I didn't download everything. Where is it all? Like, 
it's just gone now. Even the servers that were getting rented, it's off of that. Like yeah. it does, if it just doesn't exist anymore, which I think can be beneficial for people existentially to just think of, oh, that's just us. That's our lives here. <laughs> like we think they're going to be chiseled into granite or something. Like it's just, it's just that done. Yeah, just, just a blink, just a yeah. one stroke of a key, and poof, that's it. Yeah. I mean, there's also the question of, like, as these things uh, get more and more split up, like, do people want to have five different apps to listen to all their different podcasts? Like, yeah, I don't think anybody's happy about that situation with, like, streaming TV right now, like, having all these different services that they have to, like, remember which one, which show's on and stuff like that and paying for all these different things. Um, so, yeah, the the idea that – because to me, one of the things that's most, like, magical about podcasts – is like it's it's built on this XML RSS format. It's a protocol. It's a standard, meaning like it's not something that anybody owns. It just says, hey, if you can publish, you know, a bit of XML that follows this specific format, podcast apps of any kind uh, are meant to be able to interpret those and give you a listening, you know, interface for them. Um, so that that to me is really magical that it's not Apple that owns the definition of what a podcast is. Right. Um, and so if you are a podcast creator and you have like a variety of different choices for where you want to host your show and you can self host it or you can go to like SoundCloud or Anchor or, you know, any number of these services, Libsyn, uh, and then your listeners also have the same degree of flexibility where they can say, oh, I, I love Apple Podcasts or I love Overcast or I love Pocket Cast or whatever. Um, the interoperability, that to me was, has been one of the most magical kind of aspects of, of podcasting as an industry. And it's definitely starting to degrade the past few years with Apple and Spotify, like you said, like switching more and more into these like native subscription models where you're never going to see an RSS feed. You're just going to be uploading stuff to Apple servers directly and they're going to, you know, handle all that stuff directly. Um, it sucks. Like it's, it's awful that we're potentially on the route of losing just this open standard that is so like simple and hasn't needed modification for like 15 plus years yeah. uh, into something that's going to be more locked down and people like it's, it's not fun for the consumer either. Like I don't understand. <laughs> it's not beneficial for anybody besides Apple and besides Spotify. Like it's only good for the companies. Yeah. And it, I mean, data harvesting that and just thinking of this writer strike and people that, getting more and more commas in their bank account is kind of the driving force. Mm -hmm. And however I, whatever I need to do to do that, I will do it. And you think of the other side of it, like, I just like making stuff or I'm just doing, that's an unfair fight. If you then engage in some level of capitalism or a merger or hostile takeover, whatever the thing may be where you're trying to, Hey, pay us fairly. And they're like, do you know what I did to, I mean, I, I own so much stuff already that you, that was yours and it was easy to have, but you were just content to kind of look past that. I think of every pot, it goes back to that XML thing where I, I, it is, I know I say that and people are like, it's probably more challenging. You're cutting yourself. I highly recommend people just look into it and see how simple it is that they very quickly took away and made it seem like it was impossible to cook. And people that are, I can't cook. My friend Brian Gutman had the funniest joke about that. I was like, when you say that, you're basically saying, I don't know how to read. (laughs) Because cooking is just this and this quantity in here for this long. You, You can get close to it. Yeah. You might not be a chef, but you can get close to it. And XML is the same thing. You don't have to be a developer. You don't even really, you can do it in like a .txt. Yeah. You can write it in anything. And that they took that away because they kind of, and by they, I mean companies that knew 
this is going to be a hard commodity for us to obtain and own because anyone can own it with virtually any computer, with no software. They could write this up and connect it to wherever they're hosting their files. So I guess if you have your little MP3, you got to figure out a place to put that. But it's pretty simple. Yeah. And to take that and be like, well, now the, it's easier than ever. Just upload your MP3 right, MP3 right here. And people go, oh, it's so easy now. Like, but do you realize what you just gave away? Yeah. Like now it is, it is their thing. And all that like nonsense boilerplate legal stuff you didn't want to read through or scroll through, it's on their servers and like they can change it or alter it or sell it to AI or blah, blah, blah. Like so it feels like an unwinnable thing and it's sad to like see this little – moment this glimmer where it was punk rock it was garage music you know it was like it's our thing and we're sharing it and it just gets slowly co-opted and then corrupted and then eventually it just disappears yeah i mean this this is all where my longer term like optimism around crypto networks like sort of comes into play Mm -hmm. um which like nothing to do with the currency aspect of it or the financial aspect of it but with crypto like ethereum specifically and like various others as well i don't want to sound like i'm like shilling for something like, <laughs> absolutely don't invest in any of this stuff um but like from a from like a computer science perspective and like a math perspective like the things that you can do on a network like that are so different from the way that things have been done meaning that right now um the standard setup for any company like if they're if they're a podcast hosting company or if they're facebook or they're twitter or whatever is that they operate all these servers. Like they they own a bunch of servers, have them all hosting that company's code privately. So when you open up your Twitter app and you refresh the feed, that's running a little bit of code on Twitter's server somewhere. We can't see that code. It's private to Twitter. Uh, Twitter's like hitting up some database to, you know, aggregate all the tweets that they want to show you in the feed. You don't get to see the algorithm that determines, you know, what tweets you see, what order you see them in which ones get filtered out, that kind of thing. Uh, and then you get back the tweets and you look at them on your phone and that's kind of the whole thing. With crypto, like it's a little, it's very different where all of the code is open source by default. And it's it's verifiable, meaning that you can go and see if somebody, you know, posted a tweet from uh, from a certain account, you can go and verify that it actually came from that account and it hasn't, you know, it's not just somebody spoofing their avatar and their username or whatever. Yeah. Um, like, I think rightfully so, most people became aware or more recently aware of crypto with the NFT boom like a couple of years ago and were very skeptical of it, rightfully so, I think, because it was just pure financial speculation around memes and like all sorts of silly things. And it didn't feel very <laughs> substantial. Um, but like the, the thing that drew me into it and I, I uh, was drawn to it during that initial NFT boom where I was very skeptical myself, it just felt gross to see like the equivalent of like an Instagram feed, but there was like dollar amounts under every like yeah. piece of work instead of just like, you know, uh, people liking it, like likes felt more pure at that point. Yeah. Um, but what I ended up doing was reading like some of the, the technical specifications around, uh, like what underlied NFTs. And what I found really fascinating about that stuff it, was that it made it, it felt like podcasts where what people were doing at the lowest level were uh, designing protocols that would basically just codify, hey, here's standards for what like a post looks like. We expect a post to have a title. We expect it to have a description. Uh, we expect it to have an author. We expect it to have like a created at you know date and time. 
Uh, it can optionally have like image attachments. It can optionally have movie attachments, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And so they like at the lowest level, like if you take away all the financial speculation and, and those elements of it, um, which I think can be really, really harmful. I think there's some benefits too, but like for the most part, they're not great. Um, but if you take all those elements away, what you're left with is like a modern version of the podcast, you know, RSS model where you just have to conform to a specific format for your metadata and now you can get distribution and now it's all public. So Apple can't just say, Hey, we're going to change the code up on you. Like it's all public in a way that people can't go and update. It's permanently shipped code that is hosted on a variety of different, uh, uh, a distributed network of computers where you don't have to be the ones paying them to use the code. They're financially motivated because every time somebody writes something to, uh, the blockchain, they have to like pay uh, for that computation, which oh, goes right. to the people. Gas are, fees. Yeah. So that goes to the people that are actually hosting the network. But if you want to just read stuff, if you want to consume a podcast feed off of a network like this, that's all free. That's cool. just read only. Um, so, so if Apple did say we're restructuring our servers and your code is no longer viable, you could move it to something like that that was more open source where it was still... I guess you'd have to have a player app attached to it somehow. Yeah, so we're, we're still we, we still haven't totally built all this stuff out that's needed for for the system <laughs> that I'm describing. Like, I think all the pieces are in place, but it's that distribution element. Like, for um, podcasters to switch over to some other new technology is a big ask, and there I think there's a lot of distrust, right, rightfully so, that something being marketed from the, the tech industry. People should be skeptical and they should do their research before just jumping into something because yeah. like so many instances of tech overpromising and underdelivering and then just leaving people like stranded. Yeah. Um, and so I like what I, I'm not working on this myself, but I'm really looking forward to somebody building this stuff out where uh, we can have all of the equivalents of like like at its core, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Threads and all these different things. They're the same app, right? Like it's just posts, it's feeds of posts. You go and follow people. That all can be standardized and made open source in a, you know, in a standardized way that anybody can adopt. And then the benefit of the, the blockchain stuff is really just, hey, we can host this code on servers that we don't entrust any one company to run. You know, it's, it's on an open network that anybody can join. So I personally could put my computer into it and that'll help verify that nobody's like maliciously modifying the code to do other stuff. Um, it also just means that it's permanent in a, mm. in a, in a kind of a unique sense where if uh, people start turning off their computers in the network, the rewards for the people that leave them on go up. And so it creates this sort of natural like economic pressure where once the rewards go up, people are going to want to opt back into the network so they can take some slice of those rewards. And so the code that you deploy onto these networks ends up being kind of permanent in that like weird way where it's financially incentive. It's uh, There's strong financial incentives for the people to keep hosting it. Ah. Um, Sorry, I feel like I'm getting into complex systems now. And no, stuff, I but. love that. No, it's great. No, I, I mean, I, this is, you know, if I'm honest, something I understand less than 100%. But the the premise behind it, I think, hopefully anyone listening can be like, oh, yeah, I think I understand what that means. But I don't know necessarily, like, the machines being turned off, are they, would you say they're operating as servers or they are the ones, you know, like mining Bitcoin kind they're of They're operating as servers. So, okay. yeah, Bitcoin is such a different thing. Like, right. I, okay. I've never gotten into Bitcoin the, the the thing that I think is is so different um, about the stuff that I'm I'm more interested in is that there's actually the the ability to ship code to these things. Bitcoin doesn't have that. Bitcoin is just here's like a cryptographically secured ledger of transactions that you know 
says that so-and-so paid so-and-so this amount on this date. And if you aggregate all those transactions, you can have some sense of like how much money anybody has. And that's that's all Bitcoin is, right? Like how much Bitcoin you have, that's the only thing that it cares about. It's the only thing it stores on the network. With Ethereum and other systems like this, the advancement is that you can actually store the, the same thing that you would onto a server in a database in a more traditional you know, app like a Twitter. Uh, that can all go onto the actual network. Um, so you can program stuff and ship code to servers that are going to make your code open source, that are going to be readable by other people. People can verify that the code they're running is actually the code that they're looking at. There's no opportunity for uh, like malicious hacking in, of sorts. Like if uh, like Twitter has databases where they store all the tweets and somebody could theoretically just go in and modify a tweet because they have access to that database. Mm-hmm. With a crypto network, uh, the way it works, like it's so pure and simple and has it, there's no complex mining, you know, kind of stuff involved where the first thing that happens with crypto is you get a uh, like your your wallet, which contains like a, a passcode. Uh, that passcode is just a random number. Uh, and the scale of that randomness is if you were to, to uh, identify a, or, or a single atom in the entire known universe and say, hey, this is your your secret atom and the location of that atom. That is the the equivalent of how random the the initial like wallet that you get or make is, and that's just a random number generator. So that turns into your secret. That's the thing that you got to protect. And then everything that happens, everything that you want to do on the network afterwards, just factors in your secret. So I, if I write a tweet that has specific text in it, it's basically running through a filter of my secret where I don't have to reveal my secret to anybody else. But anybody in the network, if they needed to, could go and verify that it went through my secret. Okay. Um, so it's it's just an encryption technique. But I forget. I'm just rambling now. I forget where I was going. No, I this. love it. Like, this is great. Um, okay, this is so, like a very thorough and simple breakdown yeah. of like why it's encrypted or why the version the, – the, the, the difference between the fear that you should have or should not have in the various places you are operating online. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, – so like uh, like I was saying that somebody at Twitter could go and modify a tweet that you wrote mm-hmm. because they control the database and there's no external views into that database and who's accessing it and, and yeah. when they modified it. With crypto, because you know that that secret, it's just on your phone or it's wherever you store it and nobody else in the world has access to it, but they can verify that something was signed by, with your secret. Um, that means that nobody can go and modify stuff that you've written afterwards. And like maybe the Twitter example isn't that great because maybe people aren't that worried about Twitter going and modifying their stuff. But there's other benefits as well where if you look at moving off of Instagram, for example, let's say that there's some other photo sharing social network that becomes interesting and you want to bring your network over. You can't do that right now because all that data is on Instagram servers. It's protected by Instagram's code. If that data was to follow a standard format, the same way that podcasts all follow the standard RSS format and host it on a public network. That would mean that anybody can build an app uh, that's brand new and you can just go and bring your existing, your all the content that you've uploaded, your follow, the people that really? you're following. Yeah. Cool. It's, the only thing that's different is where that data is. And so if it's on a public network that's not owned by any one company versus it being private where Instagram's got it locked down and they're protecting all the different yeah. ways to access it. Um, and again, like that's the, it sounds like a utopian kind of like 
this is never going to happen sort of thing. But if you look at podcasts, like we've had that forever, right? Like if you switch hosts for your podcast and you just, you know, backfill all the older episodes uh, into your new, your new host, your listeners never have to know the difference. They might be using yeah. Apple podcasts and not know that you've changed hosts at all. Right. Like that's cool. And if your listener switches apps, doesn't make any difference to you. You still get to listen. I think that same degree of flexibility can be, there's the potential for it to be protected through these kinds of networks. I like it. Cause I think that anything you're trying to switch typically comes with, so like if you wanted to do a YouTube thing and switch your videos, is that you got to start a whole new thing. Right. But you're like, well, they're just videos that are attached to like, but the link, the individual link would be different. So like within the crypto thing, you know, so I, what would be a destination that would be, so I'm sharus.net slash crypto. Say that is, that's a bad example, but just say that is the place where, oh, that's like on this app, I go here, but he's, oh no, this is a better example. He's on Alpha. Oh, Alpha's so good, you know, but he's switching over to Bravo. So he's switching to the Bravo app. And then, so you just go Alpha slash Sharus. Nope, now I forgot. Now he's at Bravo slash Sharus. Yeah. You could, if it's public and still sort of encrypted and goes through your secret, go to that second website and your likes, comments, all this, yeah. everything's still there. Yeah. Because it is just code. It is just that yeah. little bit of data. And that, so it wouldn't, even though the URL had changed, that's not that big of a deal. Right. Because you just, wherever you're distributing that, say, everyone, this old URL, forget it. Or you could forward it. Could you even yeah. put it on there like that yeah. way? Oh, yeah. I mean, it all, it all depends on the various different apps and what they choose to do. But the fact that the data is all public on some network that anybody can go and access uh, allows for that kind of thing to happen. It also means, and I think th- this is like one thing that I hope really develops like I- in the the near future is um, not just more aggregation apps, but also more things where they're leveraging all this public data so that you can, you know, have your website be as functional as, you know, a, a multi-million dollar app developed by a big team because it's using all the same the, the same tech as its foundation. Yeah. So you can drive people to your own destination, your own website, and those kinds of things without it being not interoperable. Like if somebody wants to listen to your podcast on your website, they can do that. If they want to listen to your podcast on uh, their favorite podcast app, they can do that. And it's all the same to you because you still get the same listens, same stats, all that same stuff. Like, yeah. Man, that's so much better. Because the idea of like, oh, we got to tear down everything and rebuild this whole house and your furniture, you know, you could take it, but probably better to just – you know, everything around it's going to be different. There's there's a, a tactile, like a physical feel to the old model. And this feels yeah. more like let's finally move into this space where we're kind of built off cops and robbers, where everything's, yeah. a, you know, if, if someone did go into the Twitter database, change a tweet, some sort of forensic person would have to go, all right, so so-and-so user, blah, 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 tweeted this at 1241 a.m. Tweet was still intact. So we can verify it was this way. Now you who worked at Twitter, your user number here logged in at 1242. Now at 1243, this person complained that their tweet had changed. We forensically think you did it, user, whoever, or employee at Twitter, so-and-so. And that person would have to, no, 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 I just, and they would either take the stand or make a plea, but they got caught, cops and robbers. Right. And then I think of like, even just forensically in a, in crime these days with cameras everywhere and our ability with DNA to like, you can almost picture someone like threatening to murder you and you'd be like, 
There's a camera right over there. Are you holding a knife? You're going to get DNA all over you. you. Is this worth you going to jail forever? This is so sure. dumb. Let's ignore this crime. I mean to minimize if you're having crimes happen in your life, specifically like really uh, terrible ones like that. But on the internet, it just feels like that. Like, let's move past this. Let's move past the stealing. Let's just keep everything open and available. But make sure that if someone does attempt to do something dumb, it's it's as stupid as walking into a precinct with DNA all over you. Right. Yeah. Or or just not possible from a, from like a mathematical perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's yeah, even thing. better. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> if you can just rule out any any kind of like uh, malicious kind of activity that way. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. That's the future. That's And why is that called like Web3, that sort of open source? Yeah. Uh, I think the, the model there for that naming convention is that Web1... Uh, let me make sure I get this right. Yeah, Web 1 was all about read only, meaning the way it worked those days was people would create websites and uh, like with code, handwritten code, uh, upload them with FTP somewhere, and uh, then anybody who was an internet user could go to, to a certain URL and they'd be able to read that web page, view the web page. You know, you could have images and all that kind of stuff on it, but they wouldn't be able to interact with it. There was no concept of like, upvotes or downvotes or like posting or like commenting mm-hmm. it was purely a read-only uh like world so that was web one so web one was read-only web two was read and write where web web two uh offered you know the ability to post onto a social network or like say that you're friends with somebody or leave comments on things and all those kinds of things that we're now really really used to as being like a natural thing on the internet mm-hmm. um web three under the, the sort of common definition is it's read, write, and own. Ownership being that third piece. And I think, again, like a lot of the language gets muddied up with like the NFT boom stuff where like people can say, oh, why would I need to own an image? Somebody can just right-click, save as, and, and copy it. Like, fair enough. That's why you don't shouldn't speculate on the NFT stuff. But the sense of ownership here is that in Web 2, the ownership belongs to the companies that you're posting to, right? Like, if you post a ton of things onto Instagram over the course of, of many years, you don't really own how that's distributed. You don't get to like take it all and move it elsewhere. You don't own how people have commented on it. You don't own the reactions to it. Those kinds of things. So ownership, I think, is is something that people should uh, be happy about ultimately when that promise is like fulfilled from from like the Web3 development side of things. Uh, people should be excited about owning the stuff that they put onto the Internet um, and it's not about reselling it. It's not about making everything like a collectible or like a tradable item. Yeah. It's just about, hey, I put this on the internet, so I should have some, I should have complete ownership over how it's presented, where it can go. I should be able to take it down if I want to. Like all these different things that come with true ownership that we do not get to experience when we're publishing onto Twitter or Instagram or these kinds of things. Man, you are a good guy to talk to about this in that. I feel I feel this personally in that going back to cops and robbers or tangible things like if you're just growing a field, it'd be real nice if the fence just kind of naturally did an accounting to take care of who came in, who went out, who tried to steal things, who didn't. Right. But overall, if you just ha- if you just grew what you liked inside there and didn't have to worry about anything else, it'd be a nice feeling as opposed to monitoring the fences and being in charge of because what happens is I feel like I've grown a lot of stuff and people come in and they graze on it. And then as they leave, someone else is there going, I'll take that. And they just Hmm. take a bunch of money and they've all made money. 
on a variety of levels, all these things I've made that have been hidden and protected places on the internet where I had no say over, where I'm like, but I made that. Right. And so as I think about like building this new network or potentially even like a player app down the road, the part that kind of stinks is like you mentioned, oh, we all thought it'd be great with these streaming services, but now it's just, a, it's annoying to have to search, oh, which one's that one on? Oh, it's over here. Now, part of that is just humans. We have a lot going on and to not be able to push buttons, that's pretty lazy. But that's how we are. We yeah. just, I'll be nice. I just blinked my eyes and it was all, every show I liked, every podcast I liked, right in this one spot. We're a long way from that. I think in the 90s when people were like, oh, I only like like five channels. If they could just aggregate that and give me that as my TV. And then we got kind of close to that. But then the value of that, the way that they can bill you for that will go way up. So maybe you create just one. All right, you got this streaming site, this one, this one, this one, and my thing that does all these podcasts right. or videos or the YouTube channel or whatever you're going to do. But it is a nice feeling to think that you could set up this pasture. You could eventually build it and have some peace of mind thinking, all right, finally, I can just work on growing it. I just like the idea and make it sustainable. I guess that's the, the way to describe If you're looking at an analogy – Oh, I've got – it's sustainable. I got all this fence up. I got all this grass growing, but it doesn't rain. Like, well, it's not sustainable. Right. And then the other versions of that where it's a swamp or, you know, how do you manage all of it and keep it sustainable? It seems like Web3 offers a lot of that where you can have enough rain, enough grass, enough people coming in, cows if they will, to munch on it, and enough protection around it where you don't have to worry about too many cows coming in or yeah. other people's cows or people – yeah, that got a little muddy, but <laughs> no, totally. I mean, I think uh, again, like the the systems that I'm describing are all there, but the applications to make this stuff accessible isn't yet. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of that just has to do with the fact that there was more money, like in doing the more speculative NFT kind of stuff in the in the past, and it really feels like the, I mean, right now we're at the lowest of like prices, and like it seems like a lot of people have filtered out. To be, uh, like we're yeah. no longer seeing day-to-day -day, like the the annoying people and like all the discord chats and stuff <laughs> um so yeah i don't know i think uh i think like f we're maybe within like five years from from these kinds of things being realized and a lot of that will have to do with uh not making the crypto aspect of it like uh as in it, like in the front of everything like it should feel natural to people the way that they're used to uh, just logging into a website, like it shouldn't require educating people on all this new stuff. It should just work. Yeah. Um, and I think it also is going to require a lot of like just self-discipline from the tech industry to like actually deliver on these things and not just promise them and not fulfill on them and, <laughs> and then run away. Um, but I, I think the thing that makes me optimistic is, uh, like with open source stuff in the past, it all ends up going on to github.com for the most part, which is just a, an open source yeah. like repository and like version management uh, software. And so everybody shares their code on there, but like it's not deployed anywhere, meaning like it's not runnable from GitHub. GitHub is just like, here's all the text files yeah. and all the image files and all those kinds of things. But you can't go and hit play on it. And you can't like build an app that uses GitHub code that's mm -hmm. just on github like you have to deploy it to a server somewhere and so the idea that we can bridge that gap a little bit or, or uh, a lot maybe uh of like somebody writes some essential open source code maybe it's something that just powers podcast distribution so you can you know have you have one function that allows you to create a new episode and it takes in all the metadata and it stores it 
and you have another function that says, hey, generate an RSS feed, and it assembles all the metadata from all the various episodes, and it generates perfect XML. And those are the two functions that are absolutely core to a podcast host. Mm-hmm. That can be code that somebody writes open source, ships it onto a network, never has to pay ongoing monthly fees because it's running on a distributed network that they're not responsible for. Other people are running it. They're getting paid out. You don't have to pay for your code to keep being used. That means that an open source contributor or an open source like uh, developer can write and ship code that is permanent and open source and verifiable and so you can do good things that build out these core foundations to, uh, that do not require any further external maintenance, external costs. I feel like once that starts, like once we start seeing effects of that, uh, because there's enough of that code out there, things start getting way more interesting because we're basically building out, we're rebuilding all the Web2 infrastructure, but now is like this public open source, like Lego bricks where everything's composable you can take a couple like really useful functions from the podcast, you know, uh, app that's been deployed and combine it with other things so that you can generate your whole website off of it. Like the, it's just rebuilding all the things that we're so used to being uh, proprietary Instagram technology, proprietary Twitter technology, and deploying those in open source where it's not a burden long term to the original person who contributed that. I think that stuff will start adding up and we'll hopefully start seeing cool <laughs> stuff and having wow. a positive effect on folks. Now, let me pitch you a future world with some scenarios a bit illegal, a bit of a monopoly. Could this be feasible and then could this be solved or remedied to where it was um, sustainable? Our favorite word. (laughs) I'll call this episode. But so illegal streaming sites, you want to watch sports or something like that. Sometimes you can find them. Sometimes it's grainy footage. People have varying views on how ethical that is or is not. And... Uh, but let's just say like the Silk Road, not necessarily ethical, but if you're into drugs or whatever else sure. you're doing on there, great spot to be. So say there's a thing, it's called like Rodeo Road and someone has built this thing. It's open source. And as long as the servers are up, they can host pretty huge amounts of bandwidth data. And you find out that as you go on it, you can just click a radio box and there's every show and every podcast delivered right to you, whatever device you are using. Oh, there's that Netflix show, Hulu one. There's an Amazon one. There's that podcast I like. There's that YouTube channel. Click them. It aggregates them, puts them right in a spot. And you're like, this can't be right. Yeah. And I think of this quote a lot, or not a quote, it's a lyric from this Arcade Fire song, the businessmen drink my blood like the kids in art school said they would. And the businessmen do drink your blood. (laughs) I just look at all those things that I... Uh, that grass I grew and the cows got nice and fat. And then as they left, they paid someone else. And I'm like, man, that's not great. So I don't think the business people would ever be okay with not being at the very top. They were above me saying, we'll just, we'll handle all that annoying stuff. We'll market it. We'll distribute it. You just get a percentage. And I would sell them that percentage and immediately regret it. And then I thought from now on, I want to be at the top of that. But say everyone that thinks they are at the top of whatever little mountain they are making, whether it is one of those giant streaming sites worth billions of dollars or just someone at the top of their little podcast thing has to go, who in the hell is running Radio or Rodeo Road? Who's running this Radio Box Check utopia where everyone is going? Yeah. Now, if they could say, but there are rewards. There are people using these computers. 
then everyone that made the stuff would go, cool, but how am I getting it? How am I getting yeah. like compensated for that? Especially the, the giant streaming sites that are like, well, we can't fight this. We don't know where it starts. We don't know whose it is. We can't take it down. It's just decentralized. So you're going to steal all our shows. Let's talk. How can we have this be this monopoly where everyone goes here? Everyone unanimously agrees if they had that one button on their phone or computer or television, they would hit it and watch everything they like. How can we monetize it where it trickles or distributes itself, funnels hmm. to everyone who deserves it in a way where they could make enough to continue making it? Is that feasible at all? Uh, sort of. I mean, technically, it's definitely feasible to have like the ultimate piracy website. It is? Um, on a technical level, yes. But it, I think it's also very, very, very easy for the actual content owners to issue takedowns to get it taken down. Okay. Because even even like if you're running an Ethereum node, it's just an app that's on a server that is, is doing all that. So if your server is like in an Amazon warehouse because you're renting it out from them or it's from DigitalOcean or, you know, any one of these service providers, once they get the notice that, hey, you're distributing this content that's not legally owned by, the, by whoever's distributing it, they got to take it down. So it'd still be pretty easy for for uh it'd be very easy for for a content owner to go and issue takedowns and get all that stuff okay. taken down um so yeah i don't think there's a too strong of a correlation between like crypto and piracy uh the other thing you were asking though how do, how do we set up an economic structure where the money can trickle down appropriately to all the people that... yeah i run hulu yeah. i'm like all right all right all right you keep taking it and putting it in this place that let's be honest it is pretty nice to have it all in one spot now we've always operated on this as there's got to be two or three players you know because yeah. you can't have this monopoly it'll undeniably get corrupted but let's just say hypothetically ai or something runs this that we all kind of trust like it's just distributing it. it's dispersing it it's not it's not taking it it's not embezzling how could that be done where then this pirate site would generate revenue and be put back into these places? Still billions of dollars, still the same amount that they could still squeeze all of their their staff, basically, writers, producers, yeah. everybody, pay them a fraction of the point so they could still have their CEO lifestyle. Yeah. But they'd be doing it with this kind of monopoly money. That is a really good question. I don't think I have a good answer. I think um, – <laughs> Like, I am curious, I haven't actually done the research on this, but like, if you were to sum up all of the monthly membership fees of like one of these services, uh, like, how does that compare to the ultimate like profit at the end of the year? Yeah. Uh, cause they're, they're obviously spending money on acquiring stuff and producing stuff, uh, licensing stuff, um, obviously <laughs> huge payouts for the CEOs and all the, the C-level yeah. executives and stuff, but there's also in many cases, like venture capital just coming in, uh, which subsidizes a lot of things and keeps things going without needing to be profitable. Like so yeah. many companies are like that. Uh, that I wonder, like without that element, I don't know if the whole thing would just collapse. Like I think there might be a lot of these companies that are entirely dependent on on VC continuing to fund them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and if you can't lie or you can't fudge the numbers of your, your right. subscription-based you know, streams and they'd go... You know, they'd line up and go, okay, but where's our this year's, you know, revenue? You, you get like a tenth of the clicks that you said you did. Yeah. So your streams, you barely broke even. They'd be like, so we got to go under? Like, yeah, you got to go under. And then everyone would rage and be like, but, but. <laughs> and then, but, you know, there's unlimited other options now. So if one of those giant things fell off, 
Yeah, man, it's a nice thing to think about, but it's going to stay the way it is, and it's going to stay them battling it it out. They're going to own stuff. It's going to be like, or it gets replaced with a totally different system, and we just don't have anything comparable in that sense. Like, uh, I I think the the route to adopting like these new kinds of services where everything is distributed and everything is more owned by the creators who are publishing their own stuff and they have more of a direct relationship with their audience, um, I think is inherently sort of resistant to that kind of aggregation. Um, because if, uh, like there's not any new fundamental, like funding models that the crypto provides. I, I think people might argue that there are, but like they're way too speculative to be realistic. I think for most applications, but in general, like the, the right stuff is still going to look somewhat like Patreon where I'm just paying a creator a monthly fee or I've prepaid for a year or whatever, like some kind of like, here's me giving you money so that I can access some library of content that you've made exclusive and, and that's a mutually beneficial relationship. Um, where the streamers and like those kinds of companies right now have a degree of control that's harmful to everybody is that they own the subscriptions and it's not about your relationship with whoever made the, the TV show or whoever made the movie that you're there to watch, right? Like it's right. your relationship with HBO. Yeah. It's not your relationship with David Fincher or whoever, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think like if the, if the new systems are built around protocols and standards that encourage more direct relationship between you and the creators or the teams of creators that uh, are, are making the stuff that you want to make, it might inherently just be resistant to that kind of aggregation because if though if that data is all in, in some public standard format that anybody can go and access you know and maybe it still checks against like are you paying for your subscription and you know verifies that before giving you stuff um that means that you know like it, it's a partial tangent but i'll get back to the point very quickly like HBO just did their whole rebrand and they shipped a brand new like Apple TV app that no longer used the Apple TV like suggested video player conventions. Oh. And so like it broke a lot of like remote control functionality that people were <laughs> used to. Like it, it broke like HDR playback. It just broke a lot of things because they decided to go proprietary. Mm-hmm. But that was forced onto everybody that was an HBO Max subscriber who used that specific app to watch HBO. Whereas if you are using systems where the data is all public and following the same format, I could continue using the same app that I was always using that's my favorite video player app, right? Like I don't have to go into the HBO one and use their less than ideal version. So if you apply that same thing, but now you have subscriptions directly to creators or production companies or whatever that you want to support more directly, you get to access the stuff that they make through that. The value that an aggregator provides, the value that HBO provides, which is, hey, we aggregate all this stuff, we've licensed it, and we created an app so that you can watch it anywhere that you want. Those kinds of values no longer become proprietary to HBO. They become available in the public domain for anybody to take advantage of. And so I think, again, it's not going to happen like overnight. It's definitely not going to happen from the top down because mm-hmm. there's no incentive for them to to switch over to these things. I think the the only way that it really happens is that it's it's bottom up, bottom up, where people are making really interesting things, and they say, "Hey, we don't want to support, you know, these older systems that are not beneficial to us. We're going to try out these newer things." Early days, it's going to be people experimenting and like taking a lot of risks and stuff. That's um, basically what Vimeo is right now. Yeah. <laughs> it's just making such cool stuff, but it, no one goes there. It's not you know right. people sit down and go, "What's on?" They just scroll through Netflix, and there's just 
you know, whatever's going on there. And then, so that is tough. Like the bottom is nice to start at, but like the top has to look down at some point. Right. The top has to come down there and be like, all right, we want to support this too. Yeah. I'm still optimistic. Again, like uh, tech is, it has a poor public perception right now and I think it's earned it. Mm-hmm. But I'm optimistic that the, the newer systems are more resistant to the kinds of, to, to building the kinds of things that are exploitative at that level. Um, and so if we're building out better things and if, you know, people in tech, uh, can work with people who are creative and excited and curious about these systems and not have it be an exploitative, uh, relationship, but have it be a partnership between, you know, these two things, I think we can start seeing examples of people being successful with distributing their stuff and making some money off of it and being able to keep making new stuff as a result of that. Um, and I think it really just is going to take a handful of examples from the bottom up, like succeeding with these kinds of things. And like the top down, like they're only going to become more and more exploitative over time. Like yeah. they're only going to increase the prices. They're only going to cut functionality that we've, we all like. They're only going to keep like doing things that, that squeeze more money up to the top. And so at some point that just has to break, right? Like it's just the deal has to no longer be good enough for people to provide to those companies. And I mean, we're seeing it with the strikes too. Yeah. Um, so I, I, it's a dark thought, but I'm optimistic that in that chaos, uh, you know, we can build out this new infrastructure that supports these kinds of things as the top starts cracking, you know, (laughs) these foundations that are no longer sustainable. I like that's a that's a, a a nice form of optimism, the kind that's like rooted in some sort of darkness. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, and this is not like a political thing, but I it feels like this middle ground that gets forgotten in that that would draw in the ultimate anarchist, like burn it all down yeah. to the most far end, like small government, don't come and take my stuff. I you know liberty. Didn't mean to do an accent there to like <laughs> cast them in a certain light. Equal parts of this spectrum, one on this side, one on this side, anarchy and liberty don't take my stuff. And in the middle, spanning all of that, somewhere within a probably a hundred mile radius of each of those people is a public library. And the impetus with libraries is, oh, you wrote a book? We'll get it in here. You can get books in all these libraries, every single one of them. We are one player app and we're everywhere, but we're, we're federally sustained. We are subsidized. So that becomes tricky in that like, oh, you, you wanted to produce that show? This year's really expensive, so your tax dollars are going up. Then immediately people are obviously like, I'm not into that. But the idea behind it, if it was orchestrated by some shadow company, I think that's why I keep going to that. Someone that people maybe didn't trust but didn't know who to not trust. Hmm. The government, they know, I don't trust you, the government. But like some shadow company, like, I don't trust them, but what are you going to do? Everything I want is in there. It would create more of a library of things where like what you wanted could be imported in. Yeah. It could be, you know, purchased if necessary, but the ecosystem within that seems to line up more with Web3 because as long as we keep them, these individual pillars, regardless of how great they're going to try to do beyond just mergers or yeah. so on, it's it seems like it's going to be hard to reconcile that. It's Yeah, I think a lot of it is really simplifying things down to the core essentials of like libraries understand that books are a, a popular and necessary medium for just a a popular and necessary medium, like in general. And so they understand that they can aggregate them and distribute them to to people that are interested in them. And that's all they really are are needed for, right? Like that's, that's the value that they provide. And so if you apply that to the internet, like there are 
we, we've had social networks for like 15 plus years now. We know generally the types of things that we want and, and, and need from them. Same thing with podcast distribution, same thing with streaming video distribution and those kinds of things. Like mm-hmm. they're all generally solved patterns, like they're established patterns. So just codifying those and putting the absolute core essential functionality into the public domain, uh, I think starts bringing some of that like library ethos to, onto the web. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, again, like Web3 gets such a bad reputation, <laughs> but there are lots of people that are just passionate about like building out these core protocols and core standards that anybody can adopt, anybody can contribute to, anybody can read from, and just having them be public goods as opposed to like purely financial yeah. speculation kind of stuff. Yeah. Hmm. Art and commerce comes up a lot on this show, which is how to try how to purify that or to just give up on it and say mm-hmm. like, they can't really coexist. You're either making stuff and saying, I just made it to make it. I don't need it to be sustainable. Or you're saying, look, I got into this business of the streaming world to like get a, as many commas as I can. So I'm going to push and do this and squeeze down and take as much, you know, those, those two things go fundamentally so far against each other. But yeah, dude, I, I, this was so great. This is like, uh, I'm glad we did it today. We'd talked about maybe meeting up and chatting a bit, but I think we would have covered a lot of this yeah, ground. And then, yeah, this is fun, man. Sometimes I, and I haven't done this in a while. I've been kind of neglectful of this show and I apologize, but moving, I'm glad you like the new space. I really, this is okay. the first recording in here. I like it. I think it was very, uh, the um, aesthetic felt warm and inviting. Yeah. So I'm, I'm happy with this. This feels like a good space to be doing this. So I'm glad you were the first guest in here. Yeah, I'm honored. Thank you. Sure. Yeah, of course. I've always enjoyed chatting with you. And like, I don't feel like this probably is the thing you say to everyone you know in LA. Like, don't see you enough. <laughs> you know, like some of your best friends, like, oh, yeah, I see him like twice a year. <laughs> it's just a weird, gigantic city. Um, but I used to ask this, and that is... There is a button, and by pressing this button, you eliminate humans from planet Earth. Everything else stays how it is. Humans don't feel anything. They just go wherever they go, whatever happens next, but they are gone. Every human. Would you press that button? This is the only information that's available to me? (laughs) Yeah. You don't know where humans go. You don't Uh, know if they suffer afterwards, but in the removal, they don't suffer, feel anything, and... No. (laughs) I don't think I would. (laughs) Okay. I just think that's a thought exercise that when things are going on in planet Earth, which has plenty of bad news daily, just thinking of that button, sometimes that can be helpful. I don't know. Like that you're, the state of it is better than however it would be otherwise, potentially. If it were an option available to me, I would put it up for a vote. Oh, nice. <laughs> even more democratic, even more like of the people. I mean, so, I'm also just curious. Like if, if, if more than 50% of the people opt to push the button, that's enough. Like I'll, I'm, I'm okay with it. I'm curious where this goes. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. But man, you'd get into. You'd have to really take the the pulse of the entire population. Yeah, but I would just tough. say, just from doing this show, it's overwhelmingly no. Yeah. And so, and I and I think that's because there've been cynical people. There've been people who have a negative view on all of it, and they're depressed and bummed out about everything going on. And yet, wow. I mean, come on. Why would it? So we've agreed to exist in this paradigm, and and it's extremely undesirable at times, but I mean, come on. And everyone's like, well, well, that's a bit far. So I I don't know why I think that's an interesting thought experiment, but it just, I don't know, it just kind of is, I guess. Anyway, I like, I don't like or dislike anyone's answer, but I like (laughs) your reasoning behind yours and that you would offer it to a vote. That's sweet. It's sweet and kind. Sharuz Shockett, 
Man, what a, this is a treat. Let's do this again. Yeah. All right. Thanks, dude. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. I felt like we could have gone on and on and on and done more bonus stuff. And uh, from time to time, there will be ends of conversations that end up only in the Patreon. But I really am enjoying this idea of uh, putting it all together as one big thing and putting that out early. So I encourage you, if you have not uh, signed up to become a member of the Patreon, maybe wait a bit. There's been a gap, but it's been you know with moving and a few other things hit a lull with releasing these shows, so I'll earn some trust back. That's fair. But this show was available for free for like four straight years without missing really a week even, uh, thanks to Dan Pritchard down in Australia for helping be the engineer during that and editing things together. Uh, it's been fun. I really enjoy this show, and I'd like to continue doing it, and I'm putting a little more effort behind it to make it more sustainable, a thing we talked about a bunch in this conversation All right, let's get out of here. This is a song by Camilla Luna. It's called Armchair. I hope you like it. Thanks to Sharus. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks for stopping by the space. Station.